Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37. Our Father in heaven, Lord, would you, um, would you bless this time in the study of your word? God, as we think carefully on, really, Lord, a, a dark time in the history of Joseph and Israel, and, and yet, Father God, there is a potent, powerful truth in this text this morning that I believe all of us need to hear afresh. And so, Father, would you walk through this with us? Ultimately, Lord God, resulting in you being glorified. I pray for that, Father. You would be glorified in the time in your word today. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, where we left off last week there with Joseph... Um, it really set a foundation of where we're going to be tracking through in the life of this guy. As it began with Joseph and his father Israel, or Jacob, and his brothers. And really what we covered last week was the foundation of the hatred of the brothers for Joseph. The reality that these men despise their own kin, their own brother Joseph. Uh, in, the, in the anger in their hearts, seeing the father's favoritism for this boy. Well, it gets worse. Um, And so if you look down at verse 12 with me, I have a lengthier text this morning, so I'm just going to get right to it. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and and he came to Shechem. Israel decides to send Joseph to go check on his brothers far away from any protection, (laughs) far away from any kind of accountability, and these men still despise their brother. The brothers are pasturing the father's flock up at Shechem, or at least that's what they think, or at least what he thinks. Notice in the text, you guys, and I want to touch on this note a few times again this morning because it so goes against the grain of what is typically taught in reference to Joseph. Notice Joseph's quick, here I am. Uh, This is not, here am I. It wasn't that Israel was trying to figure out where his boy was. He's saying, here I am. I'm available. I'm ready. I'm excited. I want to serve my father. Now, some folks, unfortunately, read motives into Joseph and go, aha, see, this guy's still trying to catch his brothers. And all I ask you is, where? Where does it say that in the text? It does not say that in the text. If it's written, it's written in your handwriting, and that doesn't count. So Israel comes to Joseph and says, I want you to go check on the boys. His immediate response, here I am, available, ready. This is what's interesting about this guy, this guy Joseph. There's an optimistic attitude in this man throughout this entire storyline. 
all the way back here where he is there ready to go. Now, is Joseph aware of his brother's anger? I have a tough time thinking he's not, at least somewhat understanding or acknowledging the fact that his brothers are angry at him and hate him. Um, remember it said last week as we were reading in the first 11 uh, verses, they could not speak peaceably to him. They couldn't speak peaceably to him. They, they hated him so deeply. And yet, Israel comes and says, I want you to go check on the boys and then bring word back to me. When my brothers were outside playing and my mom said, go see what your brothers are doing and come back and tell me what they're doing, I was never the good guy. I was always the bad guy to go do that because they were usually doing things that... Anyways, so... But nonetheless, Joseph is ready and willing to go. Joseph is to go and check on his brothers and the flock and bring word. So not just on the brothers. Yeah, I want to check on their well-being, but I'm interested what they're doing on the job. I want you to go check on the flock as well. No doubt his brothers would accuse him of being a snitch, right? I mean, as you read that, it's tough not to see that in the text. If you have siblings at all, it's, it's not that hard to see that. But again, beloved, that doesn't mean the evil desires or intent in the heart of the brothers should be pressed into the motive of Joseph. That's reading it backwards. You can't do that. doesn't mean that Joseph was seeking to be a snitch. Nonetheless, they would see it that way. All we know for the text is that Joseph acted in total obedience to what his father had asked him to do. At the same time, what is Israel thinking? Had they concealed their anger so well that Israel wasn't aware that these brothers hated Joseph? Did Israel for a second pause and go, actually, hold on a second, they're very angry at him. Maybe I'll stir up things if I send him to go check on them and bring word back to me so I won't send him. Nothing of that monologue there. Just simply Israel sends him, go check on them and bring word back to me. Apparently, Israel didn't recognize the intense hatred in his other sons or gave them the benefit of the doubt that they would not come to try to hurt Joseph. Yeah, yeah, I understand the boys are angry and I gave them that coat and they're upset about that, but they never hurt him. They never lay a hand on him. I don't know. The text doesn't say exactly what was in the mind of Israel. Joseph traveled from the valley of Hebron to Shechem, quite a travel to go check on these boys. Now, what we know from other portions in Scripture is most likely he was not just traveling to check on them, but also to bring some provisions out to them in the field. Now, look at verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. 
throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then it tells us his motive, his thought process. Oh, and I lost my spot. There we go. That he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. <clears throat> now, here's the thing, you guys, is that it's a very, it's a very um, familiar passage. It's a passage you've read, studied. Maybe you have flannel graph images coming to your mind right now as you think about, about this text. Some, it's funny what comes to your mind when you read a passage, though. When I was seven or eight years old, my brother dug a hole outside, and he said I needed to be the co-pilot and go in first to see how deep it was. So that's what comes to my mind. But he didn't leave me. He pulled me out. <clears throat> but there is a, a bit of a humor to the text as you think about it and some of these different things. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to press hard the gravity of the depravity of man in this text. See, sibling rivalry and these kinds of things, you know, they make movies about it and people joke about it, and there's that kind of an aspect in our culture. Even my story about my brother, it's kind of humorous. I love my brother, he loves me, so you can laugh about horrific things they did to me. <laughs> but... But the seriousness of what's taking place here should not be too quickly moved over. When we ask the question, what does my Bible tell me about the depths of man's heart? How dark is the heart of man? Well, remember, right after Adam and Eve came Cain and Abel, to the point he rose up and murdered his own brother. In this text, you have brothers seeing their half-brother coming near them. And they premeditate what they're about to do. This is not self-defense. This is not, oops, we just wanted to rough him up a little. This is premeditated homicide. They're waiting for him to come with the intent to take his life. The hatred is so profoundly strong, the anger is so deep, the jealousy is running so wild that they're saying, we want to take his life. Now remember, the hatred for Joseph. Okay, what are some of the, the linchpins holding up this hatred? Well, here you go. The father's favoritism. A handsome young man with strong, good, godly character. He had his father's complete trust. Notice who he appoints to go check on the brothers. He's the son of his father's truest love, Rachel. He's the recipient of a very special gift, this coat of many colors as we see in our English translations. But the idea was a long-sleeved coat, meaning it was a coat not meant for work. The work coats were shorter, and it went down to his ankles, and it went out to his arms. It was a, it was a coat of distinction, leadership. Uh, spe- he's a very special person as he wears this coat. And, and the kid obviously didn't read his brothers too well because he wore the coat. <laughs> but this gift of great love is given to him from his father in front of the rest. And then he dreams these dreams, and he has the gall, according to them, to come and tell them about the dreams. And in the dreams, there's these, there's these um, sheaves that were binding, and all of a sudden, my sheaves stood up, and all your sheaves bowed down in front of me. Then I had another dream that the sun and the moon and 
11 stars, they all bowed down to me. Younger than all but Benjamin, yet set ahead of them all in the eyes of their dad. Now, as I ponder that, the potential of envy and jealousy is great. But maybe just to have an issue with him for the rest of their life. Maybe at Thanksgiving they struggle with Joseph's coming. But no, it's deeper than that. At the root of the heart of these men, I want him to die. See the gravity of this? This is not older brothers hazing younger brother. They actually want his life. How deep is the envy running when they would actually plan this and talk amongst themselves as they see him on his way? So a man found Joseph wandering in the field, seeking to search out his brothers. The man says, oh, they decided to go to Dothan. The brothers conspired to kill him. So Dothan's about 16 to 20 miles further than Shechem. So you think about Joseph gets there, finally, can't find the brothers. Oh, 16 to another 20 miles. And there's nothing in the text that says this put him out. He just, again, in good character, godly response says, okay, so he heads to Dothan. I told dad I'd go. Beloved, I am more and more impressed with the godly character that God's producing in Joseph as I walk through the stories and look into the cracks of his life, and I'm waiting to see something that I'm not finding in reference to a bad attitude. Just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, trucking along. He's an optimist. The brothers conspired to kill their baby brother. They noticed him coming from a ways off. If you look down at your Bible... they saw him, verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They noticed him coming from a way off. And you go, how did they know it was him? Well, who knows? I mean, I I can see my brother Mark walking at quite a distance, and I know exactly who that guy is. Number one, because we walk this exact same way. Number two, we have the exact same voice. So when I see my brother Mark, I know who he is. So did they see a familiar gate? I know that walk. There's Joseph. What else? Uh, The hatred is raised to a level of premeditated murder as they're seeing him come closer. Many miles away from anyone, this was now their chance. This was now their chance. This dreamer, or another translation would be the master of the dreams, or the owner of the dreams, you hear the sarcasm in the tone, they're slandering him. Now think about that too, beloved, I want you to, don't don't miss this. They're mocking him for sharing a dream that was divine revelation from the Lord. A prophecy given to Joseph what would take place, and he's mocked for it by the brothers. Joseph is coming to his own, and his own are about to not receive him, but they're about to kill him. That sounds familiar. Just plant that seed. And so as he is on his way, they decide this is finally, they have their opportunity to express their hatred in the fullest way. The plan was to throw him into a pit for dead and then to cover up the story. This is absolutely premeditated and planned. But then there's Reuben. Look down at your Bible. But when Reuben heard it, 
he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. So he's convincing the brothers, No, I'm still in. Yeah, let's kill him, but not in that way. But then the author tells us that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. We're not sure of the motive exactly here. There's a few different motives you could chase in reference to to Reuben. Um, There's one that I lean heavy on, but here's a couple ideas. Reuben intended to return and rescue Joseph from the pit. Was this Reuben's soft spot for his baby brother? Is there a genuine soft spot that comes into this guy's heart that, I just can't let this happen? Maybe. Was this simply... He was scared of the father's wrath. If dad finds out what we're about to do, this is going to go so off the charts, no way. Was there a true conviction of the wrong that was about to be done? Or, finally, was this a good way to get back into the father's graces? That's where I'm putting my, I'm hanging my thoughts here, is because the text tells us that his desire is to get him and return him to his father. I believe there's an evil motive here. I have a tough time placing really good motives on the brothers anywhere in this story, but there's something going on here in the mind where he wants to stop the brothers, come back to the pit, pull Joseph out of the pit, return him to his father, and then he's the hero up over his brothers. Most likely, that's what's happening here. And so they go with it. Look down at your Bible. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. Of course they did. The robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. When Judah said to his, then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? So we go from premeditated murder to slave trading. Of his own brother. Of their own brother. Reuben's desire, guys, don't lay a hand on him. Uh, just, just let him be. Okay, we'll let him be. And then apparently from the text, it doesn't really tell us, but it's apparent at the end that Reuben leaves. Reuben's going to be returning and finding that there's no brother anymore in the pit. As Joseph approached, they stripped him of the robe. Now think about this. I, I forget just exactly which commentator said this, but I thought it was so interesting. The robe was given from a deep sense of love from his dad. The robe was brought to a deep, brought on a deep hatred from his brothers. 
And now the robe would be used for deep deception deception against his father. He's given a deep love from his dad, caused deep hatred in his brothers, and now it will eventually be used for deep deception against his own father. The robe would be used horribly. There was no way for Joseph to resist the mob of angry men. No doubt, Joseph was roughed up in the encounter. In a cold, heartless, angry toss, he was thrown into the pit. No water in the pit made for a hard fall for Joseph. And then this interesting little tidbit that I find so fascinating in the text. So just think about the weight of this, okay? Their brother comes, walking, he's wearing the robe. They rush him. They take the robe off of him. What are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? I mean, the scene, I would like to think that, that at least some in this room would immediately, if you saw that scene, would rush to the help of this young man. With all those men grabbing and ripping and tearing, I wonder if a few blows were given to the boy to shut him up, and eventually the robe is stripped off of him, and then they literally throw him into a pit. Helpless, hopeless, harmed, from his own brothers, half-brothers. And then they sit down to eat. You tell me what kind of heart, heartlessness is there. After they've done that, I have no doubt that the adrenaline's pumping pretty good, right? You ever been into a fight? How much your heart is just going like crazy? And yet it says, then they sat down to eat. There's no reason in the text for us to think that they went too far off to where they couldn't hear Joseph yelling. So there's brother down in the pit. Guys, seriously, come on. What are you doing? And if he's smart, I'm going to tell dad. (laughs) As they sit up there and eat, and most likely, most likely eating the food brought by Joseph to the brothers. It's a cold, cold point in the story, you guys, that after doing that kind of thing, because remember, in their minds, the design is not, we'll teach them a lesson and throw them in the pit. No, the desire is death. They are as good as murderers sitting and eating together. You tell me what kind of heart does that. As they ate, they saw traveling Ishmaelites, non-covenant people, intermarrying with other pagan nations. They're coming towards these brothers. Probably, Joseph must have been screaming and pleading as they were eating and sitting up there. Who knows if they were talking back and forth and just what was going on. Um, But we know from the later account when he's talking with the brothers, there's an actual reference to his pleading before them, him pouring his heart out before them, that this was absolutely brutal, what was taking place here. And so Judah jumps in and says, I got an idea, why don't we make money off of him? Now, you notice in the passage, you guys, where his statement is, he's our own flesh and blood. And you've got to ask a question. Is this legitimate concern? Is this where, where deep in, in one brother's heart, he has true concern that this is our own brother. I don't want to see harm done to him. So I've got an idea. Let's make him a slave and trade him off. 
I don't know. I don't know what was in the heart, what was in the motive of this man, but in that moment, he said, stop, let's not just kill him, let's make money off of him and sell him off. And here come some traders to buy him. Now, look down at your Bible. I'm going to go back. Verse 27, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Are you, are you spotting any Christological things in this storyline? As he goes to his brothers who received him not, they desired to kill him. Now they're selling him for silver. They're just... All right, we'll get there when we're done with Genesis. All right. <clears throat> the Midianite traders passed by, verse 28, and they, saw, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. You see this throughout your your Bible where it's a great sign of grief or distress or frustration, anger, just overwhelmed by the emotion that they grab their clothes and they tear it. Which shows that Reuben truly, genuinely had a game plan. He was really hoping this was going to pan out. Not only will Joseph be saved, so my conscience is a little cleaner, but I drop him off to dad. I'm back in dad's good graces. We're back. And he goes back, and he looks in that pit, and he's nowhere to be found. And he's so overwhelmed by emotion, he tears his own clothes. And they sell Joseph. The brothers, led by Judah's argument, decided to sell Joseph for 20 shekels of silver to Midianite traders, Joseph is now officially on his way to Egypt, all according to plan. Now, here's the interesting aspect of your Bible, is that you get to see the Lord's perspective as well as Joseph's perspective. Joseph needs to go to Egypt. Joseph will be going to Egypt. That's going to happen, predetermined before the foundation of the world, the Lord sending him to Egypt. It's just so fascinating, though, the path that he'll be going to Egypt. If you would have gone to Joseph and said, hey, Joseph, when he's a little boy, you know what? You're eventually going to be going to Egypt, and you're going to save your whole family, and, and they're going to be so grateful for you. Your dream's going to come true. Seriously? Yeah. But there's a couple more details. <laughs> and there's a couple things that the Lord is going to use in your life that's going to be painful and absolutely of necessity for you. Now look at 31, the cover-up. Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. Now notice, they don't tell him this. He jumps to the conclusion. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And all the brothers have to say is, "Mm mm-hmm. They never had to say a word. 
All they had to do was present it to him. We shed, now think about this. This is how the, the conscience works, right? We justify ourselves. We never laid a hand on him in the sense of killing him. We never shed his own blood. All we did was sell him. We dip it. We send it to dad. We never told dad that we didn't do that. He jumped to the conclusion. We agree. Our hands are clean here. Now, we can look at that and go, Dan, that's ridiculous. Nobody would ever justify their sin to that extent. Oh, really? Really? I'm amazed at how quickly and at what length we would seek to justify our own concealed sin. So to think that these brothers walked away feeling justified, I don't think is that too much of a stretch. Did you happen to notice how they tricked the dad? They tricked Jacob with their brother's garment and the shedding of an animal's blood. Funny, I remember a story where one brother put on another brother's shirt, killed an animal to make food, and then put hair on his arms to trick his dad. Remember that guy? His name's Israel, was Jacob at the time, though. See the cruel irony in the text? Here's a man who completely tricked his own father, now being tricked by his own sons with the use of of their brother's garments. Talk about a 360 coming right back to home in the life of Jacob. And Jacob immediately recognizes the coat. Of course, he remembers that day. Remember how precious it was when I handed it to him and he looked at the coat and he loved the coat and he wore the coat. It it took Jacob a, a second to recognize the coat for what it was. And he saw the blood and the, 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 the cruelty of that moment is so intense as the brothers saw dad's face change. And the emotion of the loss of his son and the power of that object in his hands. And they watched it. They watched him endure that. Guys, what, what kind of sinful nature is in the heart of man that you inflict that and just let it rest inside your own father? Listen to how much this tore up Jacob. Look at 33. And he identified it and said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments. Again, it, we're, giving, we're given a list of, of how much this impressed on the heart of Jacob. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. The sackcloth was just a practice for mourning. It's, it was like uh, gunny sacks, that really, really rough material. It was just a part of their culture. They would wear that as a means of mourning. Wouldn't, they wouldn't comb their hair. They'd put on sackcloth, and they would mourn and mourn for days. Jacob first kicks off by ripping his own shirt. Really quick, just for your own side study, walk through the text and track when he's called Israel and when he's called Jacob. Just for your own study. I'm not going to chase it this morning, but it's just fascinating. I don't believe our Lord is a God of, of ambiguity, but he's a God of, of detail. And so the use of Jacob and the use of Israel, our Lord's at work there too. So he puts this on. 
all his sons and all his daughters, first time we hear about daughters, aside from Tamar, but apparently there's more daughters, rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. The grief and the emotion and the intensity in Israel, in Jacob, at that time, you guys, was so great. Now, there is an irony here. Do you see the favoritism again? All the brothers and all the sisters, Dad, we're still here. Yeah, yeah. But I will die mourning, is what he's saying. I will, I will, I will go to my grave mourning over this particular son, regardless of the presence of you other sons and you other daughters. And they couldn't comfort him. And he wept bitterly and proceeded. Meanwhile, in the life of Joseph, would you look at verse 36 where we get just this little tidbit at the end of the story. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So after all this has taken place and there's all this uncontrolled emotion in the life of Jacob, Pharaoh, his right-hand man, the captain of the guard, Potiphar, is now sold this slave. Now, I've always thought about this in reference to the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And you were to say... Paul, we really need to get the gospel to King Agrippa, King Festus, and these different high rulers. What do you think? What should we do? How could we, how could we visit the jail to go and share the gospel with these kings? I got it. What are you going to do? I'll get arrested. <laughs> and then I'll be taken into custody. And then I'll be brought before them. And then I'll share my testimony, why I've been arrested. And I'll, I'll just unfold the gospel in front of them. Brothers and sisters, do you see the, the, the tapestry that the Lord's weaving and putting together here, ultimately coming to his glorious purpose? He's got Paul before those kings for the sake of the gospel. He's got Joseph in Potiphar's home for the sake of salvation, for the sake of saving this people during a horrific famine. He's in God's care the entire time. So here's, here's some thoughts I want you to chew on thinking about where we're at in this text this morning. You ever asked yourself this or heard somebody say this in the midst of some of the more trying circumstances of their life? Where is God? Where is He? Sometimes it's asked, where is He? In a accusative, angry sort of way. Other times it's somebody with tears just running down their cheeks and they just say, where is God in this? Other times it's purely they just want to know, how is this ever going to work together for good? Where's God in this? And they mean it genuinely. It's not, a, it's not an outburst. It's more of a truly, genuinely asking the Lord, Father, how are you at work in this set of circumstances? And I've seen all three. I'm sure you've seen all three. Perhaps you've said all three. Where you're frustrated and angry and accusative. Or, or you just 
an outburst before the Lord, but genuine. Or you just want to know, God, how on earth are you going to put these things together? There's too many variables, too many moving parts. There's no way, God, that you could put that, you could use that for good. There's just no way. I would think at some point in your life you've either thought or voiced this question. The circumstances are so crushing or odd or just confusing. How could God actually be at work in the middle of this horrific set of circumstances? This is one of the strongest, most intense responses from this world to you and me as Christians. And they usually pose it this way. Is God in charge or is he good? Because there's no way he's both. And, you, and why are they saying that? Because look, look at all the bad stuff happening. If he's good, but impotent, okay, he can't do it, but he's good. That makes sense. But if he's in charge, but he's not good, that makes sense. But you mean to tell me he's in charge of all things and good? That's not hypothetical, beloved. That's the world's reaction to you and to me. Why? Because they've had deep pain, severe pain in this nasty world. And a Christian to come and say, God is absolutely sovereign over all things, and he is perfectly righteous and good. Now, depending on the friendship with that individual, if, they, if you are a good enough friend after their outburst, they may go, so what do you make of that? And that's when you have an opportunity to bring the word of God to bear. That's when you have the opportunity to bring the word of God to bear upon their situation. Years ago, I was talking with somebody, and, and he was pressing me on this. I think it was my journeyman when I was plumbing. And I, I just started the statement by saying, you won't like what I'm about to say. Or you won't agree with what I'm about to say. Or maybe you won't agree with what I'm about to say. I just wanted to preface it in such a way that it wasn't just me trying to slam him, but just be honest and say, hey, perhaps you will think that I'm out to lunch. And that's fine. You already do. <laughs> so let me just share what I think and what I see in the Word of God that God is absolutely sovereign and totally good in all things. And it takes some reconstruction in their thinking and in our natural thinking of what good is. But also, we're typically thinking on a very, very shallow level in reference to God's capabilities in the midst of circumstances. Because, beloved, I have seen him do things in the Word. I've seen him do things in church history. I've seen him do things in the lives of humans in this room that nobody would have ever imagined he would accomplish with a set of circumstances they had. And that is just a stabilizer for me. It just, it just sets my feet on this rock when I hear those testimonies. Where I look at the Word and I see in church history and I see God in so many ways, He's sovereignly working in the details for His good purpose. This is why truth for us, for us, this is why truth must be sought over emotional responses to perceived circumstances, which is almost impossible to do in some sets of circumstances that are so deeply painful. 
almost impossible to go back to the text and let the logic and the truth of the words speak into a set of circumstances when the emotional level is just off the charts. But the truth remains the truth. Your emotional state doesn't dictate that which is true. My emotional state does not dictate that which is true. So we must be faithful to seek the answer from the pages of Holy Scripture. The storyline of Joseph's life is a lesson for Dan Mason. Our God is absolutely at work in the smallest details of our lives. He is not only a God of the large monumental events, but one who is with us in our deepest alone moments. That land, your deepest alone moments where you feel the most vulnerable and scared and intimidated, the sovereign of the universe has you. He's right next to you. He has good plans for you. Did you hear my brother's testimony this morning from the word of God about the presence of the Lord? So I have a book recommendation I want to throw out to you, aside from the word. I encourage you, if you've never read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you've never devoured it, please pick it up. This book has been a life-changing book for untold amounts of Christians, and myself being one of them. It shows over and over and over again that the Lord is absolutely in each and every circumstance. So here's another thought. I know I'm, I need to shut this down. Final thought. <clears throat> As we walk through the rest of Joseph's story, so I'm, I'm setting kind of a, a guide for you to think on, or at least something to ponder as we move through this. Watch out to see if Joseph ever embraces a victim mentality. If anyone could ever complain before the Lord, it was Joseph. None of us would be like, Joseph, quit whining. Yet this young man will continually let truth reign over apparent difficult circumstances. And then, beloved, when he gets the opportunity to give complete retribution and revenge to his brothers, he looks to the sovereign hand of God and withholds his own vengeance. So, let that just kind of settle. And you guys know me, I, most of you do, that what's in the depths of my heart is I, I hate watching. I do not enjoy watching those dear to me suffer and endure. But there's nothing that will rush to your rescue greater than this truth the truth of Almighty God's sovereign good pleasure in the midst. He's at work. Now, if I were to go to Joseph while he's in the pit and tell him, you know, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, you know, at that moment, it seems so insincere or insensitive. But hear it from the Word. That is the truth. You're in pain. 
but you're not in pain out of his will and out of his love and out of his good purpose. Our Father, I pray that we would be faithful Christians. Lord, to let the truth of your word speak above and beyond our perception of circumstances. Dear God, that that is so hard to do sometimes. And I would say, Father, that apart from your supernatural grace, we, we won't do it. But Lord, I pray that we would take our Bible seriously. We would take you seriously, Lord, what you said in your word. You are not a a weak, mild God. You are the sovereign of the universe, the great and glorious creator of all things. And you have promised us you're working all things together for good. That you are the Father who is in the heavens doing whatever He pleases. That you're working all things according to the counsel of your will. That you placed placed Saul in front of kings and leaders. You eventually bring Joseph, Lord, as we see it before Potiphar and before his own brothers and his dad and used so dramatically. Dear God, we have ample evidence to respond in trust and peace in the midst of our circumstances. So let truth reign. Let the truth of your word reign, Father God, in our hearts. Dear Father, I I just plead for PCBC. I plead for this body. Lord, we don't know what what dangers and what potential harm and suffering that's in front of us as a body. But we know exactly who's in charge and where to look. So, dear God, I, I ask of you afresh, would you bring fresh stabilizing to PCBC? Each and every Christian that's in this room right now, Father God, would you stabilize their hearts by this truth? And may we be a faithful people that look to see how we might be used by you and for you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.